tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. Our news is bite sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Monday, January 17th, 2022. This is episode number 195. Happy Martin Luther King Day. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour and Conference, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, AKA Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Join us and over 23,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to our show. Today, we're talking about Tiffany Haddish and her weed DUI, double dealing in California, how cannabis could solve Maine's forever chemicals problem, how the Viola brand spreads the wealth, dispensaries in Oklahoma finding it hard to get workers, the high costs of bad bud tenders, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. So starting off the show today, we have got Priscilla Agoncillo. She's a Canamomipreneur, a multi-award-winning influencer, CEO of the award-winning Original Breeders League, and a smoking superhero. She's known for keeping elected officials accountable and having the best weed ever. Priscilla, what is your headline today? Thank you so much, Susan. Um, my headline is, an absurd cannabis experience delivers high-end smoking devices, mocktails, and more in Kalamazoo. So David Robinson hopes to one day open his own cannabis consumption for now, uh, consumption lounge. For now, the former pharmacist has elected a different road into a fast-growing cannabis industry. It's one that brings Robinson to your doorstep for a private party or even a wedding reception with state-of-the-art smoking devices, a charcuterie board, and mocktails. After three years as a pharmacist, Robinson returned to school this past fall and is working towards his Master's of Business Administration at Western Michigan. He didn't want to wait until his degree to, uh, to go into business. So he launched Absurd Cannabis Experience in November and hopes that he will help to position himself um, uh, to own a operating and consumption lounge in the greater Kalamazoo area. The other experiences on the menu, each 90 minutes in length, range and cost from $70 to $170, depending on the type of luxurious smoking device selected. For example, renting a student glass gravity bong 
that retails for $5.99 is, um, at, at stores is a more expensive session than renting out a chill steel pipe bong for a consumption session. A major factor in uh, launching the idea was uh, creating an alternative to alcohol-fueled parties and get-togethers. So in that vein, he is looking to partnering with businesses in Grand Rapids and Kalamazoo to offer puff-and-paint-type parties as opposed to more pour-and-paint-type parties. Having a scientific and pharmaceutical education, um, he's had a much better appreciation for the side effects of the vast amount of chemical substances in the world and the effects that they have on people and wish more people could understand that cannabis is not a dangerous thing. Robinson faults propaganda and misinformation as driving factors behind some of the negative stigma that still surrounds cannabis today. So he's hoping to completely change that. While a cannabis consumption lounge may well be coming down the pipe in the next couple years uh, for Michigan, for now, the in-home business model is one that's a good step and uh, is pandemic-friendly. So uh, best of luck with those types of parties. Um, I, I think that this is an interesting story because more people are approaching that are um, – you know, not trying to get into cultivation or retail. Um, I think it's important that uh, this industry is supported by all of the ancillary businesses that make up what our industry is as well. Uh, so this is Priscilla reporting for State of Cannabis News Hour. Priscilla, the prices that they were listing, um, I forget what it was. It was like $70 to 100 something. Was It didn't say if that was per person. I don't see how this really makes money. I think... Uh, there is the element that gets you through the door, and I think there is another element that you actually make money from. <laughs> that would be my guess. Meaning the illicit market. For sure. Well, in Michigan, <laughs> you still have, you know, um, caregiver, right? So that's that's definitely what's happening here. So it's a Tupperware party. <laughs> yeah, you pay for the party. Yeah. Um, you pay to bring in these different uh, types of devices to try from and you know you need something to smoke out of so oh, you need something to smoke um, out of them with so that product is probably the caregiver product. Yeah, as, as you all know I'm all for cannabis events. Uh, one thing to note that if there is anybody in Michigan you do need a marijuana event organizer license so they do have one of those um, that are in their in their process that you do have to apply for so I'm not too sure if his model it sounds like his model would need that, but um, yeah, just something to note for those that are in Michigan for can trying to host cannabis events. It's um, it's also a good way, honestly, to sell the glass. So those more expensive pieces that people maybe they can't afford or they want to try before they buy. What I found is a lot of um, glass makers or accessory makers will give you the items pretty much for free um, and almost on consignment. People can use them. And then more often than not, people fall in love with them and they buy them and walk off with them. So there's the way to sell retail. Come to Michigan and come buy a used bong. It's not. I mean, I'm telling you the truth, though. Like, they, it's usually one-time use, and then it gets bought by the end of the week, especially if they stay. Didn't Ease try to do this model? No, I heard like four years ago they were looking into this. But um, yes, Jason. I was going to say I think it sounds like a public health risk to allow the resale of already consumed uh, smoking apparatuses. That's what I was thinking too. No thanks. Um, 
Yes. All right. Thank you so much, Priscilla. Up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is also a superstar at cracking dad jokes. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What you got, Rico? All right. So my story is coming out of JD Supra, and I got a good friend of mine to uh, help join the conversation today. His name is Marcus Roebuck. So I played football at um, Northwestern University, Big Ten ball. As a full scholarship athlete, it was shitty being broke all the time, knowing that a school was making lots of money off of your abilities, your likeness, and uh, shit. Our entire academic course load had to be compatible with the football schedule. Makes you think twice twice about um, them calling us quote-unquote student athletes instead of athlete students. Um, I think the best way to describe it was indentured servitude. We had a choice to be there, but um, the way they recruited us was very predatory. And uh, the great education that we received was limited to whatever you could work around your athletic responsibilities. We were on billboards, folks brought our jerseys, and uh, we were in video games and never got paid until UCLA's Ed O'Bannon broke the system with his class action suit against EA Sports. Uh, We got a little bit of cash from that, and EA discontinued the college games, but cats still weren't getting what they they were owed for sacrificing years of their prime livelihood for an unlikely dream that they'd be making millions when it was all said and done. A few years ago, I'm proud to say my younger Northwestern football brothers um, led the way in attempting to unionize the student-athlete system. It didn't work out the way we wanted, a whole different story for another day, um, but it led to more athletes nationwide hopping on to the conversation, and last year, NCAA finally gave in, losing another lawsuit, and now name, image, and likeness, or NIL, contracts are fair game for student-athletes to make money off their abilities and not just risk their um, ability to play. So per uh, J.D. Super's article, uh, this has allowed endorsements, sponsorships, partnerships, and overall business relationships for aspiring professionals on and off the field. Um, And that's why I brought onto the stage with us today, Marcus Roebuck, uh, the founder and CEO of Game Time Entertainment and uh, Construction, uh, which I might add is doing great recently. Uh, Diversify, people, diversify. Uh, But yeah, Marcus is a good friend of mine for almost two decades now, a former college athlete as well. He almost ended up playing pro baseball, uh, but he's a talent agent that works with many professional athletes, going, uh, getting them deals uh, with companies. And I had the pleasure of working with him on a few cannabis uh, projects recently. Uh, Marcus, what are your thoughts on uh, when we'll finally see a collegiate athlete sign a CBD or THC NIL deal? Well, hello, hello, everybody. How you guys doing? Um, thank you, Rico, for the intro. Um well, I see what's going. It's going to be a while, man. Uh, honestly, it's taken us a long time. Uh, it starts off with the NCAA down in Indiana. Um, I would say, give or take, maybe 10 years um, due to the fact that we have to get every state local. I mean, uh, recreational, right? And not all every state is medical right now, medicinal. So I think I think a good 10 years would be able to set us at a good goal to reach, right, uh, for the NCAA. But, I mean, everybody's got to get paid. All the, all the colleges around every sport, they have to get paid now. So right now I would say um, I would say a good 10 years. Um, that's give or take maybe seven. So In the article that um, they even referenced, like, one kid, he is 21, but he has a, a beer company uh, contract. Do you see 
like uh, cannabis, like working its way into maybe like the 21 and older crowd, some of the older, maybe uh, juniors and uh, seniors that are playing? Yeah. I think that that's a, that's a, that's a blurred line right there. Right. Um, because then you start to ask yourself all these questions, right. Is who's going to sneak in and who's the 20 year old that's going to sneak into the bar and be able to get those type of beers. Or I have a friend that works at a, a liquor store that can get them that beer. Right. And so these little nuances that people are kind of shooting through and trying to make sure that their plan is bulletproof. It's not going to work. It's not going to work right now everywhere, right? But in in the states of California, I could see it happening sooner than that 10-year in, say, Indiana or Missouri um, or, you know, I just don't see an NIL contract coming from a cannabis company for another five to 10 years. Marcus, uh, do you do you find that the cannabis brands are knocking on the door, though? Are they re- wanting to come in? Most definitely. Uh, do you know how many times uh, I've I've sat there on the, the treatment table? I've played football and baseball as well and ran track. So being on that treatment table, knowing that the icy hide is not everything that you need, you need that substance that can numb your, your muscles. You need that that relaxing sensation that comes from that CBD or cannabis company that has that, that icy hot alike, right? You, you need that. And, and as athletes, we know we smoke weed. We know you, you take tinctures to sleep for insomnia, um, just to relax. And so well, I think that most, that's going to be needed. And mo- most importantly, we know the testing schedule. <laughs> oh, most definitely. Most definitely. I just think of all those pain medications that we gave college athletes for so long and how much better cannabis is for them over the long term of their life and their athletic career, especially those who face injury to be able to make their own damn money. I mean, you, you think about Calvin Johnson. I mean, Calvin Johnson is a Hall of Fame receiver, and I'm not going to name a whole bunch of guys, but, I mean, we, we see that he's very public about smoking weed and, and getting himself to, get back on a, on, a, on a platform where he can at least perform in the weight room. Absolutely. Marcus, we definitely appreciate you coming on um, um, online with us today. Um, good luck with everything that you're doing, and, you know, we'll be in touch. Um, this is Rico Lamit, the dopest dad on these Los Angeles streets, representing the State of Cannabis News Hour. Back to you, Susan. Well, actually, uh, I it's my pleasure to introduce our next speaker, Ms. Liz Rogan. Liz is a cannabis educator, brand strategist, and healthcare consultant. She's also the founder of the Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara County, and she's our SOC pin girl. Um, Liz, what do you have for us today? Good morning, everyone. Thanks, Priscilla. Happy Monday. Um, Thank you for joining us. My story today comes out of the beautiful state of Maine, as reported to the Bangor Daily News by Julia Bailey. The headline reads, cannabis may be a surprising solution to Maine's forever chemicals problem. So Loring Air Force Base is up in northern Maine. Um, In uh, 2009, the Air Force Base, part of it, at least a big chunk of it, was turned over to the Aroostook Band of Mi'kmaq in Native Americans. And the land, unfortunately, was so polluted at that time, it was characterized as a federal Superfund site. So the Air Force says many of the toxins had been removed, but Richard Silliboy, who's the vice chief of the Mi'kmaq tribe, said the tribe really wants to know the extent of this pollution. So enter industrial hemp. 
ongoing research by members of the Micmac Nation and the group Upland Grassroots, along with scientists in Connecticut and Virginia, are looking at the ability of industrial hemp to extract uh, perfluorooctosulfonic acid, which is PF, sorry, PFOS from the soil. PFOS, along with inorganic per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAs, are often, or sorry, PFAS, are often referred to as forever chemicals. So they've been used for, for a very long time in industrial and household um, products and have been found to pose health risks in humans. Unfortunately, it seems that it's really challenging to eradicate them from the soil. So Maine itself has a big problem with this, and so there, this research is exploring one possible way to address the worsening problem of these forever chemicals that they're finding in deer meat, chicken eggs, dairy, milk, soil, and groundwater. And basically, agencies are scrambling to find ways to identify, mitigate, and remove the health, ha health hazards. And hemp may be one of the first known solutions for this. David Madore, who's the deputy commissioner of the Maine Department of Environmental Protection, said the research fits in well with ongoing work at the department, and they're looking to collaborate to you know, and open to any options to um, address this. So the group at Loring planted several small plots of, in, uh, plots of industrial hemp and soil that was known with the forever chemicals. And once it was matured, it was harvested and sent to the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station to um, run testing. So they're still looking uh, deep into this. They don't really have any answers here yet. But as a uh, biologist and botanist, I can tell you that cannabis sativa is an accumulator plant. It can uptake um, toxins from the soil and air, and it has a very unique ability to move it from the roots to the shoots, which often concentrates it in the bud, the sex organs where a lot of the cannabinoids and trichomes, with the I'm sorry, where the terpenes and cannabinoids are found in the trichomes. So this is obviously an ongoing um, problem that we're going to see in a lot of other states, not just Maine. So I have a friend in the audience who um, I'd like to invite up if he has, if he's here and has a moment to comment on this. But this is something we're going to find in the cannabis industry ongoing. It's obviously something that's already occurring in industrial hemp that's not being tested um, because of the, you know, the nature of the plant from wherever it's imported from. So. This is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour with this exciting uh, remediation story. That's huge. huge news. If that if it ends up working out, I just like read up like a bunch of stuff on PFAs, and um, it's no joke that people are getting fucked up because of that. Shout out to Dupont. And that's why it's important to have organic um, cannabis and hemp if you can, because of that fact that it sucks up toxins from the environment. Oh, exactly. Thank you. Anthony um, Stahl is on stage. He's a, a large-scale cultivator, works with large-scale cultivator. Did you want to give us any insight, Anthony? Um, well, actually, I'm doing a trial with about 110,000 square feet. We, we, did a, we have the quote-unquote legacy pesticides such as uh, chlordane, which has not been used since 88. Um, and then uh, we're using a bioremediation where we're introducing microbes. We've identified certain bacillus strains that eat pesticides. So on the positive note that the uh, systemic pesticides like boscolid, dimethamorph, and microbutanol, I've seen about an 80% reduction in the past three months, which is positive. Um, unfortunately, the pesticides you're talking about, those things are really nasty. Um, they, I haven't found any research yet about breaking those down, but we're, see, we're certainly seeing, um, we're gathering all the uh, plant material, harvesting it, 
doing micro extractions and measuring it, and we're seeing very, very high levels in the weeds. Um, so they are certainly taking it out. Um, so I, I think the one thing is, is, as the plants are absorbing it, you are taking it out, but then you're still stuck with plant material that still contains the, uh, the, uh, all the pesticides and, and legacy things that are left behind. So that, that's kind of the next thing as far as how we get rid of that chemical from, from the hemp. But uh, there are certain things out there. Pretty cool. We're at time on this headline, but I uh, wanted to give Anna the last word. Oh, uh, yeah. Just Anthony had it on point. The, and the cannabis will remediate uh, ground soil. Um, it was done in uh, Chernobyl. So that is a, a known um, use of cannabis. But then again, what do you do with the cannabis now that's contaminated with the pesticides? So it's just transferring the problem from the soil to the plant. But if we can manage that and, uh, you know, incinerate it or get rid of it in that way safely. Let's, let's send it with Jeff Bezos on his next trip to the space. I just had that thought, Susan. I just had that thought. <laughs> on the dick rocket? <laughs> yes. Let's keep smoking the news. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we had time for that one. So coming up next, she's a feisty conservative redhead who never backs down in a debate with cannabis-loving peers across the aisle. A former Capitol Hill communications director and the founder of Panoptic Strategies, we've got the State of Cannabis NewsHour's very own Washington insider, Gretchen Gailey. What you got for us today? Uh, good afternoon, Rico. Uh, my headline today is coming out of uh, Louisiana from the Louisiana Radio Network. Um, and there's not much going on in Washington, being that it's a federal holiday. So I thought I would branch out a bit. Uh, their headline is having only two medical cannabis growers, a monopoly. Will lawmakers consider further growth in Louisiana's medical marijuana business? Now that medical marijuana is available in its dried smokable form, some are complaining of the high price, leading others to consider expanding growing operations. One of the state's nine cannabis pharmacies is asking between $440 and $480 per ounce for the herb. Gretna Representative Joe Marino chairs the State Medical Marijuana Commission and says the high price is due to the limited supply from only two growing operations. When first approved in 2015, only two cultivators were allowed with a maximum of 10 pharmacies. There are currently only nine. Marino says lawmakers clearly did not foresee expanding to allow smokable weed under medical cannabis when they first passed the law. Demand is heavy, but the high cost is a deterrent. Marino says having a cannabis monopoly in place puts the medicine out of the average person's reach. He said, what other medicine is there that a patient could get a prescription from a doctor that the state of Louisiana limits how many people are producing it and how many places where it can be sold? Medical cannabis is rarely covered by health insurance. Neighbor states with medical cannabis have anywhere from eight to a dozen cultivators allowed compared to Louisiana's two, and their average prices are lower. Marino's Medical Marijuana Commission will meet during the upcoming redistricting session to, to discuss supply, demand, and patient concerns. Marino feels the state's legal cannabis law needs to be expanded to help put the medicine within patients' reach. Um, the one we have talked about the high prices in Louisiana before, um, what interested me about this article was that it was a more mainstream, uh, media outlet, uh, taking notice. And I think Sean's going to talk about this a little more with her story, um, about what's going on in Louisiana. I would love to ask, um, our cultivators and maybe Jason back out there, um, what their thoughts are on this. It drives me nuts when I see a market open up and they limit the licensing, uh, for cultivators, 
um, to really open up the market. And they're like, oh, let's have five cultivators. Like, that's a good plan for millions and millions of people. Um, but some say, you know, limited licensing helps protect uh, what's going on in the States. You know, they have their residence requirements and yada, 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 and they think they're going to control the market. I think it's bullshit. I think you need as many cultivators out there as possible supplying a market. Uh, this is Gretchen for State of Cannabis News Hour. I couldn't agree with you more, Gretchen. This is a definitely a protectionist market space in Louisiana, and I wouldn't call it a monopoly in Louisiana. I would call it an oligopoly. But also, too, um, by by having these protection, protectionist policies in place allows for an inflated cost because there is no uh, there is no. Uh, uh, competition basically in the marketplace you have two operators that are basically dictating the price to all louisianans and uh they should they should all they all deserve better yeah i'll go further i'll go further and call it a government cartel they're gonna end up like screwing people over and it's 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 a medical it's a medical issue too because if they end up like connecticut 50 percent of your uh 50 percent of your uh your sourcing is just down if you have any molding issues so people are gonna get people are gonna get hurt and people are gonna get sick. And even for patients, this doesn't make sense. I mean, for the market, for ingenuity, for genetic uh, diversity, for for um, you, you know, know, it I all comes down. Question for for friends who um, on the stage or in the audience who have a little more tenure in the industry, what is the deal with licensing? Any like I get being licensed, but any limitations at all. It's not the kind of market. It's just like any other industry. You should, if you want to do it, you apply. If you succeed, great. If you don't, you don't. And it, I feel like read between the lines because social equity and limiting licensing was a complete lie. So can someone tell me why are we still doing this? Profits over people. Money. When it when it well, originally came up, was it ever a good idea or was it always just bullshit? Well, Sean, when this law was set up, this was set up seven years ago, and clearly they have not evolved. It's taken Louisiana quite a while to get anything moving there. Um, and but who, paid, who paid to get the laws set up, too, is the thing. Well, I thought I thought correction, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought Louisiana put in the, in their uh, licensing program for cultivators that it had to be done through a university. Yes, that is that is how it was first set up. I don't know if that's still the case. I imagine it is because they haven't done much to change the law. But yes, I know that the cultivators here do have a partnership with local universities. More government bullshit. Well, hopefully things get better in Louisiana. And up next, we have the very famous... Mr. White Gucci, a.k.a. Mr. Jason Beck, a.k.a. the longest continuous retailer of medical cannabis and no boof. Uh, Jason, what do you have for us today? <laughs> Thank you so much, Priscilla. Happy MLK Day to everybody out there. And today my story <clears throat> talks about double dealing, legal illicit blur in the California cannabis market. In the five years since California voters approved a broad legal marketplace for cannabis, thousands of greenhouses have sprouted across the state, but these under their plastic canopies conceal a dirty little secret. The cultivator who operates the, the grow north of Sacramento holds a coveted state-issued license permitting the business to produce and sell its plants, but it's been virtually impossible for the grower to turn a profit in a struggling industry where wholesale prices of cannabis buds have plunged as much as 70% from a year ago. Taxes approach 50% in some areas and customers find better deals in the thriving underground marketplace. So this company has two identities, one legal the other illicit. 
In a quote, we basically subsidize our white market with our black market, said the cultivator, who agreed to speak with the Associated Press on a condition of anonymity to avoid possible prosecution. It's, it's, it's not too hard to operate outside the tracking system's guardrails, the grower said. Plants can vary widely in what each one produces, allowing for wiggle room in what gets reported, while the, there is little in, in the way of on-site inspections to verify record-keeping. The system is, is so loose, some legal farms move as much as 90% of their product into the illicit market, the grower added. In California, no one disputes the vast illegal marketplace continues to dwarf the legal one, even though in 2016, a law stated boldly that it would in, incapacitate the black market. Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom, who was lieutenant governor at the time the law was approved, called it a game changer. And in October, California law enforcement officials denounced the destruction of over one million illegal plants statewide, but said they were finding larger illicit growing operations. In the cannabis heartland of Humboldt County, many illegal growers are moving indoors to avoid detection and investigators are making arrests and serving search warrants every week. But with so many underground grows, we may never eliminate the illegal cultivation, Seraph William Hansel said in an email to the Associated Press. <clears throat> in September, a cannabis company sued government regulators, uh, better known as Elliot Lewis, uh, in, in state court in Orange County, alleging so-called burner distributions where using sh shadowy front men to get licenses to buy wholesale cannabis, then selling it into the illicit market uh, to, to step side taxes. The, no state is claiming to have eliminated illegal operators. U.S. Representative Earl Blumenhauer, uh, an Oregon Democrat who co-chairs the Congressional Cannabis Caucus, said he saw little prospect for undercutting illegal markets without federal legalization, which has been stalled in Congress despite having Democrats in control of Congress and in the White House. Uh, irony in the legal market is that wholesale prices have plummeted, shaking the supply chain a year ago. A cultivation could get about a thousand dollars a pound wholesale. Now that's dropped to as low as three hundred with a market saturation, and slap that in the face with a hundred hundred and fifty dollar cultivation tax on a on a three hundred dollar pound, and that's a stunning fifty percent profit rate. Um, I, I feel so bad for these growers, and de California definitely needs to change this and remove the cultivation tax. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Hey, Chemo, happy Clubhouse birthday! Love to hear your take on Jason's headline. Thank you. Um, I think when we, uh, you know, when we hear about uh, legal weed going into the illicit quote unquote market, we hear a lot about burner distros, but I think this has a lot more to do with people trying to just get their bills paid and stay afloat in the legal market. And uh, yeah, you know, I've, I've allegedly uh, uh, saved, saved some businesses by uh, liquidating their stock several times. And uh, yeah, it's not it's not about burner distros. It's literally about keeping your investments. Yeah, it's, it's, a lot of people. I mean, it's expensive as hell. And I'd be very surprised. You know, a lot of these. If you're not an MSO and you're doing well right now, I'd be surprised if you weren't doing a little dirt. You got to do what you got to do. Yep. Is it dirt or is it the right thing? The right things grow from the dirt. Come on, Gavin Newsom, get in here Only and fix this. Only if it's clean dirt, Rico. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna relight this room. We've reached past the half hour mark. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. 
Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. All right, so she's an entertainment attorney, cannabis and psychedelics advocate, and known in certain circles as the Princess of Pot. Up next, we've got the star of Shall We Talk podcast, Shalina Panu. What kind of news shall we talk upon this beautiful Monday morning? Thank you so much, Rico. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is Virginia files two separate bills to decriminalize psilocybin and other psychedelics. One bill was filed by the House, while the other was filed by the state. Although the bills are almost identical, they both have some differences. One bill covers all psychedelics, while the other focuses on just psilocybin and psilocin. It is somewhat similar to what the bills that have been presented in California regarding psychedelics and psilocybin, and with some differences. Virginia's House bill would amend current drug statutes making possession of peyote, psilocybin, psilocin, and ibogaine by adults 21 and old over a civil penalty of $100. Any funds collected by this statute will be given to the Drug Offender Assessment and Treatment Fund. What's great is that the sponsors of this bill are really advocating for psychedelics for mental health treatment purposes, which is a consensus among other states as well. The only challenge with these bills is that the leadership that it's under. The state's Republican governor has voiced concerns about implementing a recreational uh, cannabis market. So the chances that he would be on board with psychedelics does seem far-fetched. What's great is that there has been a wave of support in multiple states to decriminalize possession and or use of psychedelics, especially for terminally ill patients and severe mental health issues. Currently, California, Missouri, Michigan, Vermont, Washington State, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Texas, and most notably, Oregon, have taken legitimate efforts to decriminalize psychedelics in some capacity. Do you think Virginia has a chance at decriminalizing psychedelics and or psilocybin in this next year? My name is Shalina, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Legalize all the things. I hope Glenn Youngkin, you know, I just hope everybody uh, stays safe out there because they're going after cats. Period. Stay clear of the law. I think they need those psychedelics now that they have Youngkin after all the things he's said. Backs upon about. Let's keep smoking the news. Well, up next, we have Mr. Chris Eggers. Chris is a cannabis security consultant at CC Security Solutions and our favorite former badge holder. Chris, what do you have for us today? Good morning, everybody. My article today comes out of Yahoo News, uh, straight out of Oklahoma, AOK Oklahoma. Um, and it touches on that uh, dispensaries in, in Oklahoma are struggling to find uh, workers. Throughout the service industry, employers are faced uh, facing the prospect that there simply aren't enough people to maintain pre-pandemic staffing levels. It's led to offers and higher wages and more benefits to employees, but unlucky businesses can't recruit enough staff and are hiding, finding it hard to stay open. The state is near record low unemployment rates, one economic metric that has returned to pre-pandemic levels. There are simply a few Oklahomians, Oklahomans, my apologies, in the uh, labor force without work. Fireleaf, a cannabis dispensary with eight locations in central Oklahoma, has felt a pinch over the past six months, said Allison Griffith, their marketing director. We're having the same struggles just like everybody else, Griffith said. Despite offering insurance and paid time off and other benefits, the dispensary has had trouble finding staff levels in order to keep its doors open. One of the more 
they say that they're one of the more competitive dispensaries for employees, but are still struggling uh, with hiring simply because when there's a COVID surge, people tend to shy away from the more public-facing positions. Um, so obviously, all sectors of the economy have been affected here, with an estimated 4.5 million people quitting their jobs in November, the most recent month of which data is available. Okay, so now, Oklahoma Labor Commission, Leslie Osborne said in this article, um, she said, quote, so if they're making roughly $7 an hour at a restaurant, it appeared that they're starting at least minimum of $12 to $14 in dispensaries and grow houses. So it's about double the pay that they were making and 45,000 people out of one industry or one sector into another is a huge change. Despite Firely's current difficulties finding employees to work at its dispensary, Griffith said that the service to cannabis industry pipeline is real, and they estimate that they uh, took a ton of, or a few people uh, from the service industry uh, into into their dispensaries throughout 2020, which, um, according to this article, which goes on into some pretty intense detail, says that is a very common um, transition from workforce from one industry to, to the other. Um, I know in California, I see job postings a lot. I see a lot of job fairs going on within the cannabis industry. And so I thought this uh, article was interesting. Um, and I'm sure, you know, Oklahoma always sparks uh, some fun conversations here in the State of Cannabis News Hour. My name is Chris Eggers, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Bud tenders under the microscope. Bud tenders are so important. And yet they're just not getting trained, they're not getting paid like they're important. Um, something's got to change. They're the backbone of the retail end of the game. If you have weaknesses in your retail business, but you have a good bud tender who knows what they're talking about and can help you organize your shit, they can take you to the next level. But if you treat them like they're, um, you know, a McDonald's employee, then you can expect the same results back. You hate on McDonald's employees? What's going on here? No, I mean, I'm talking about if you treat them like they're nothing, if you treat them like they're some fast food worker, and they have no value to add to your company, then they won't add value. But if you invest in your bud tenders and you have a good one who can actually help you, you can expand and grow so much faster than if you try to go at it alone. It's just a matter of having good leadership and actually respecting people for what they do and what they bring to your table. Your bud tender is your front of sales. So your bud tender is always customer facing. They're going to be the ones that actually make or break what happens when it comes to retail operations. And to discount that, is to make a grave mistake in your retail operations. I agree with that. So we are at the end of the time for that story. And we're next. So she's a retired combat journalist and mindset coach working at the intersection of education and human performance optimization through cannabis. Also a diehard defender of Delta 8 Access. Coming straight out of Austin, Texas, it's Sean Salvaje. What you got for us today, Sean? Hey, I want you to have access to whatever cannabinoids you need. Um, let's see here, but also very well regulated. So my headline for today comes from NBC News. I'm going to jump right into it because I'd like to get people to weigh in. Uh, the headline is from national media outlet. So, uh, nothing local craft cannabis industries in California on the brink of collapse. Advocates say the headline itself is not that exciting, right? I mean, we all know this. We've been talking about it for a year here on clubhouse and even longer if you're in the game. Um, what is interesting, however, is that this is coming from NBC News National Media Outlet, which means it's picking up uh, network executive attention in bigger ways. So we can start to see this trend kind of grow and expand in 2022. And we saw that recently with uh, the Catalyst CEO being featured on Vice and doing two very interesting pieces. The question or the or the opinion that I wanted to bring to the table for today's 
stories on the state of cannabis is the future of PR and how we can do a better job organizing around it because it's very clear that as things normalize, media outlets are going to start to play the game. So when I used to broker for the Air Force, the first uh, operation that I targeted was Vice. It's because I was a millennial. I knew that they were doing documentary storytelling, and I thought they would be the most um, modern way to tell the Air Force story. Up until then, it had been really 1980s, like if it bleeds, it leads kind of news. And it, it just wasn't actually capturing the American public's attention. And so when you get Vice, it kind of leads the other networks to come on board. Now we're seeing this piece come from NBC, and we're going to see more. I see financial investment information on CNBC. Uh, We're seeing things pop up on Cheddar. We're starting to see more normalization. And I wanted to ask the room what you think your top PR strategies are going to be as you look forward uh, to this expanding industry and normalization of the plant and your work with it. You might want to look at that as as you start to look at how industries are beginning to control their message and what influences congressional members to make things happen in Congress. It's not often lobbying and advocacy. It's media. We had a whole president who determined his actions through his presidency with Fox News. And I'm not saying this as a judgment. I'm saying it as a fact because I work directly for that administration. And often we'd get our PR news bullets from his Twitter account or whatever Fox was programming that day. So the, what you say in the media landscape can actually impact the direction of the industry. And what I would like to see us do more is be a little more conscious with it, uh, especially when we see a lot of cannabis companies trying to use social media, like Instagram, Facebook, or other platforms that historically have punished cannabis um, or limited your access to your audience. You can see, you can start to reinvest that energy into SEO delivering on cannabinoid science, actually telling people the real benefits. That's why a bud tender is so valuable. But Susan, we've if got, you're telling you, we're yeah, out of time. I can't hear no, you. No, tell- we've got Thomas uh, Giodinello up from the audience. He's a PR and brand strategy and communications in cannabis specialist. Thomas, uh, we are at time, uh, but go ahead and give us the last word. Uh, you know, the one thing I would add here is if you're on the product side, Look into affiliate marketing partnerships for this year. I really believe it'll be a way to incentivize publishers to put you in editorial. And if you are making sales, that's always a great thing as well. Actually, I think Gretchen needs the last word. Go ahead, Gretchen. Um, Well, I would just jump in and say, um, for those who are trying to get coverage on a grander, larger scale, even if it's just at the state level, what people need to think about PR-wise, and I think a lot of advocates and folks in the space forget this, is that your message needs to talk about how this impacts everybody, not just the cannabis industry. It needs to impact people sitting at home around their kitchen table who don't realize that cannabis is going to be a part of their lives or need it to be a part of their lives. That's when broad media cares, uh, national media cares, when it's something that applies to a broad group of people. If it's just about, you know, how this is going to impact one small group or just your customers, they don't care. Well, up next, we have Sugar D. Sugar Copland Easy. She is our favorite industry chef, consultant, and advocate, and she's co-chairman of the Los Angeles Regional Reentry Partnership Education Committee. Sugar, what do you have for us today? Thank you so much, Priscilla, for that awesome introduction. 
Uh, good morning, fellow correspondents, superfans, and audience. My headline today is from the Cannabis Business Times by Zach Mintz. It's a 24-minute read, so I'll summarize and try to make it brief, but please go back and read the entire article as there's some great work being done by this brand. And it reads, Viola Spreads the Wealth. Al Harrington, 16-year MBA veteran and CEO, co-founder of Viola Brands, is on a mission to bring opportunity to the people most affected by the war on drugs. But war on drugs, best known for his 16-year National Basketball Association career, Harrington transitioned to the cannabis industry when he launched Viola Extracts, now known as Viola Brands, in 2011 while playing for the Denver Nuggets. As co-founder and CEO of Viola, the multi-state operator with 122 square feet of cultivation operations in Colorado, Michigan, and Oregon, Harrington built his company from the ground up. Viola has products available in six U.S. states, Michigan, California, Colorado, Oregon, Oklahoma, and Washington, and operates its own dispensary in Detroit. And products became available in, the, in Canada in November of 2021. Viola plans to launch additional markets this year. Even as Viola continues its rapid expansion across U.S. states and international lines, the company remains steadfast in its commitment to restoring the communities most impacted by the war on drugs. They're really focused on building a high-quality premium brand with purpose, which is all about using their platform to uplift, educate, empower, and be inclusive to people of color. We feel like we're directly tied to their success, and we're never going to forget about the people. Harrington was welcomed and first introduced to uh, concentrates at the Denver Hood Lab, an area where industry leaders hashed out their everyday issues, shared juicy nuggets of knowledge and creative solutions. Harrington's credits must of Viola's success to his time spent as a fly on the wall in the Denver's cannabis scene during the company's infancy. He goes on to tell about his first experience with wax and how that led to becoming a foundation for it. Viola, and to learn more about the inspirations behind Viola's brands and his first experiences with cannabis and branding, please refer to the article. My focus is on the social equity side. So in the effort to achieve social equity, one of Viola's specific goals is to create 100 black millionaires within the cannabis industry, a lofty task by any measure, but one Harrington views as attainable through Viola Cares, the company's social equity initiative launched in February 2020. Viola Cares focuses on community engagement, working with local and national organizations to provide expungement, social justice reform, and more with the goal of creating more than 10,000 jobs and expanding diversity in the cannabis industry. For us, it's bigger than just product, he said. It's about our overall impact and overall presence being in the industry that is pretty much trying to keep us out of it. I feel like social equity is a check uh, check the box issue for a lot of governments and MSOs when it should be priority to make sure we're involved. Viola partnered with Ball Family Farms, one of the first black social equity licenses in Los Angeles, in Los Angeles to launch its Purple Rain cultivar during the height of the George Floyd and racial justice protest in 2020. Each company pledged $1 from each Purple Rain sale to root and rebound an organization that provides education legal advocacy, and policy reform on behalf of families and communities most impacted by mass incarceration. In October 2020, Viola launched its incubator program to provide operational support to black entrepreneurs in the cannabis industry. To learn more about the incubator program, please refer to the story for explicit details on Harrington's leadership and partnership with the 80-year-old agricultural history black-owned gold standard farm. The initial strategic partner 
of Gold Standard Farms, CEO Jarrell Harrod stated that he was inspired by Harrington's leadership, guidance, and belief in him. Al really took the time with us in wanting us to do it right, he said. We sat with him and his team, and they gave us blueprint of what to look out for, things to do in building facilities, different climate controls, HVAC systems, and the full works. Al allowed him to follow him everywhere, uh, every month, meeting him in L.A. or wherever he was, day-to-day works, things that uh, that he goes through as a CEO of a multi-state operator. Aaron Hackley, on the other, uh, other side, founding partner of CEO and Mez Brand, says Harrington has served as a mentor to him since 2017. His involvement in Viola's incubator program allows his company to benefit from Viola's infrastructure, including operational support with finance, marketing, public relations, and more. So going on to just... Please follow along in the story. Um, there's lots of nuggets in there, but they just want you to know that they mean everything and that who we represent and from a non-monetary standpoint, the first thing that Viola has to do is to continue to talk about the disparities. This is D. Sugar Coplin easily on the sacred day of celebration. Happy Martin Luther King Jr. Holiday, back to you, Susan. Love, love Al, love Viola. Uh, one note, though, don't name your your cultivar Purple Rain. Probably not a good idea. IP. Uh, let's. It all depends on how you spell it, Susan. <laughs> Maybe not. Yeah. We need yeah, Brandon no. here. Yeah, no. <laughs> so uh, next, you may not be a Superman fan, but would you rethink that if you knew that Clark Kent smoked weed? Well, he does in real life, and his name isn't really Clark. It's Christopher. That's right. He's a communication strategist and publisher of the American Cannabis Report. Up next is Christopher Smith. What you got for us this morning, Superman? Oh, my God, what an intro. I think I just want to leave it right there. Uh, Good morning, Rico. Thank you. And uh, good morning, Priscilla and our queen, Susan. Uh, I have another bud tender story, which is like Chris Eggers and I showed up at work wearing matching clothes. I know he's handsome, but it's pure coincidence, I swear. My story is from Cannabis Now, and all the quotations are from the article, so please don't shoot the messenger. My headline is, bud tenders are holding back cannabis, and it's not their fault. Quote, some pregnant and breastfeeding women aren't listening. Despite health professionals' warnings, the number of pregnant women using cannabis at least once a month doubled over the last decade to 7% of women surveyed, according to one recent study. Though this upward trend is partially a result of healthcare professionals' reluctance to talk about weed with their patients, researchers from Washington State University's College of Nursing identified another culprit, Bud tenders. Another opinion later on is harsher. After a cordial greeting and a recitation of whatever's on sale, comes the same warmed over stoner science passing for medical advice, followed by critiques from researchers complaining that bud tenders are contributing to the delinquency of pregnant women. One possible cause illustrated here is a lack of investment in training. Although bud tenders are far beyond retail, part pharmacist, part psychologist in some cases, the people who do your nails or your hair go through more training. Others believe the problem is that a bud tender is just another McJob. A Colorado cannabis worker named Andrew Muir is quoted here. He broke into the cannabis industry during the medical cannabis era in Colorado. Uh, he found you can literally flip burgers for better pay than selling an intoxicating drug that's still federally illegal and neither increased demand for cannabis during the pandemic nor bud tenders classification as essential workers has done anything to change this, this disparity. 
And some say the problem is that moneybags dispensary owners are too cheap to pay. Muir, again, believes that complaints about bud tending boil down to the simple cruelty of cold economic logic. I believe that when you're not paid properly, you're not going to do the work you're paid for as a person who never... Uh, succeeds always complains uh, it's someone else's fault uh, bud tender jobs pay poorly in part because the jo- it's a job almost anyone can get still viewed as a cool job dispensaries report being flooded with applications for every opening um, alright so there's a lot of dirt being slung in this article obviously it's not clean dirt sorry Liz Rogan um, I've run into a few bud tenders who were clearly newer than others but they're always backed up by more senior people with more knowledge but bud tenders I think are the this tip of the the spear in the retail environment, obviously, and when knuckleheads are asked for medical solutions, problems can occur, and this is even, I think, a big risk to the dispensary model. So I'd love to hear from uh, others in the room what you think can be done to change this impression and reduce the risk. I think one of the things that we can do is find a better name. Um, In an earlier story, uh, they were calling... Uh, they were calling it, where was it, uh, Louisiana, they're calling them pharmacies and we call them dispensaries and retail outlets. I don't know. They're, I don't know what the name should be, but there needs to be a better name, a salon. I don't know. Well, well, pharmacist is wrong, like illegal. Yeah, they cannot ph- actually not call ph- themselves That's a medical training. And a medical well, training. I, but, Completely oh, illegal. You, you, it, can, it can be a pharmacy if you spell it F-A-R-M-A-C. <laughs> if you looked at the articles where they're called pharmacists, they're not, and that's the issue there. But I think direct-to-consumer, unfortunately, is where companies are seeing that, that growth, and that's why the bud tenders are getting screwed. All the money is going in that. They're not paid well. But it's unfortunate because these people do give a lot of really important information to patients. Wellness there consultant. Be an opportunity. Yeah, there you go. Consultant, some like a wellness consultant or some. This is an opportunity for a brand to actually brand and and include their people in that message because I'm not kidding. You can take a bad bud tender and give them the training, especially the ones who really care and they want to know, and they can triple your sales. Well, speaking of Dr. Felicia, uh, Dr. Felicia is the CEO and dual board certified physician, helping people understand how much power they have over their health while using cannabis as medicine. Uh, Uh Oh, we lost Priscilla. Dr. Felicia, you're up. Okay. I I heard her, but thank you, Priscilla. Um, Happy MLK Day, everyone. My headline comes from the Seattle Times. Battle Royale, Cannabis Regulation Bills Pit Regulatory Agency Against Some Marijuana Businesses by Kip Hill. In this corner, we have the Washington Liquor and Cannabis Board, who have requested a change in the law that would enable it to prohibit the sale of intoxicating materials derived from hemp. Producers in the state argue that the ban is necessary to avoid an existential crisis for their businesses, as hemp producers can provide raw material for pennies on the dollar, compared to licensed marijuana producers that must adhere to a costly set of state regulations. In the other corner, we have the Washington Canna Business Association, uh, led by Vicki Christofferson, executive director and lobbyist, who states that the law's restriction of non-impairing cannabinoids paired with a measure that would require rulemaking before the sale of any quote-unquote synthetically derived cannabinoid puts Washington at a competitive disadvantage compared to other states that are allowing the introduction of substances safely into their markets and the illicit market, she said. Battle Royale goes down January 20th when both versions of legislation will have a public hearing. Uh, as a physician, as Delta, I watched Delta 8 blow up, 
I became concerned about the fact that Delta-8 only exists in cannabis and hemp uh, in trace amounts, less than 1%. We don't know the long-term effect of taking large amounts of Delta-8 uh, without the other cannabinoids present. Number two, I'm also concerned about the safety of creating uh, Delta-8 from CBD using solvents and acid. I'm wondering how much of that is still in the product to affect the consumer. I believe CBD and Delta-8 and all cannabis hemp products should be regulated and safe for the consumers. Uh, this is Dr. Dawson reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. What a professional right on the dot. Thank you so much. Uh, that was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all of the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Priscilla and Rico for co-producing the show with me. Thank you to our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. And thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears. When there is news in your city, county, state, or country, your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose.